Welcome to Trans Canada Stories. I'm Cynthia Sweeney, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Emma Stanley. I use she, her pronouns. In this podcast, we go beyond the binary coast to coast, telling the stories of trans people as people. In 2018, filmmaker Sarah Foti made a documentary featuring survivors of a decades-long homosexual witch hunt in Canada. The film recounts personal stories of dedication and betrayal at the hands of the Canadian government. Former public servants were targeted in what is called The Purge. And in the documentary The Fruit Machine, they came together, united, to seek justice, reconciliation, and memorialization. On September 19th, two survivors joined a screening of the film at the Halifax Central Library, followed by a fireside chat. The event was sponsored by TD Bank Group. Today, we are humbled to be joined by Martine Noir, one of those survivors, to talk to us about her experience being targeted within The Purge. So Martine is now here with us in the studio. Martine, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and very humble about it. And I'm recording from my bedroom today because I have COVID. <laughs> the purge is a difficult topic to talk about. And I can only imagine how difficult it was to actually be involved in it. So I met you through this documentary called The Fruit Machine. Now, The Fruit Machine is about a series of events that took place from uh, starting in the 1940s with Cold War paranoia leading up uh, to, I think, 2017, when there was a formal apology from uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about what happened. Uh, can you tell me what happened from your perspective? Okay, so me, I'm really a girl like from Montreal, uh, born, raised in Montreal. My father was a cinematographer from National Film Board. I had two sisters, very artsy family. And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Everybody was really like a lot of talent and I didn't have a talent. Um, so my father worked really hard to try to convince me to do something with myself. So I joined the Army Forces to become a medical adjoint, a medical assistant. And I didn't really want to go. I didn't know what I was getting on board with. I was like 19 years old. Uh, I was seeing a woman in Montreal, even the one that started the first Pride Parade in Montreal. I was, I was with her. And so I joined the army. And at the two first week, I was like resisting, resisting, calling my mother, asking her to get me out of there. And she was saying, no, I cannot do anything. So I really joined in and I put my 150%. I cannot tell you that I knew that we could not be as homosexual or not. I didn't grasp that. So I did my training. It was amazing, good training. And I graduated and all that. And then I met a man. And I fell for him and I started going out with him. So I didn't question myself, oh no, I was seeing a woman before, now a man, or I'm 19 years old. What was the most important was to succeed because it was heavy training and to make it. So finally I'm transferred to Borden. He is transferred as well to Borden. And while we're both training at one point, I meet a woman at the hospital. And we start talking and everything. And one of the things she tells me is, let's keep our boyfriend or because we're not allowed. And that's the first time I grasped that, mm -hmm. oh, and we're not allowed. And I don't even have time that I turn around, I get arrested.
It's almost like they read my mind. Uh, so I get arrested in the field and I, it's a car that comes and I think they're lost tourists and they arrest me and they bring me in that little house to interrogate me. And never I think, oh, I should get a lawyer or what's happening or nothing like that. But then they go about my sexual relation with people, how many time and how, and they get really, it's very humiliating. Mm -hmm. So they release me, they arrest me again, and it goes on like that. Then they let me go. I finish my training. I end up in Ottawa. And finally in Ottawa, I'm, uh, I'm at the National Defense Medical Center. And uh, I graduated from my training. I work at the pharmacy and I get called by the psychiatrist. I'm at the pharmacy, so I'm not really sure why. So I go there and it was to evaluate me to see if I was rehabilitable. So finally, it didn't really go very well, obviously. But they let me go, and to the point even that they came back to me and they said, okay, we want to keep you, uh, we want to renew the contract, a contract of three years. And I say, oh, okay, I don't want to do this role anymore. I would like to become a cum research. So they went on and they came back with their contract and I signed it and I was going to go to Kingston. And it's only like a month later that they call me at the head office to tell me that I was dishonorably discharged for being a sexual deviant under a law policy where homosexuality was the same that bestiality, rape, and incest. It was in December. It was a shock because I really thought after all that training, and I was really good too, I, I really succeed well, that never something like that. I could not understand. I could not understand why my sexual orientation and sometimes even my gender was in the way because we're in the 80s. They didn't really want women in the army. Mm -hmm. It was really new. So sometimes I question, was it really because I was a lesbian or because I was a woman and nobody and there was a great policy to come after us so I left the army I was totally destroyed I did try to fight with my father uh, we made it until the chef the chef de l'état-major that was General Theriot that told me there was no injustice and mm -hmm. that I let myself go so I stopped fighting from there because I had to take care of myself I had to go through therapy and it's only in 1999 that I found really a job that was fitting for me was IBM. Uh, and when they offered me the job the first time, I said no, because I was sure they were like, like the army. Mm -hmm. So I started here in New Brunswick uh, in the Maritimes at IBM in 1999 for Y2K. And I discovered a fully inclusive company. The policy was there since 1953 that T.J. Watson put in place about inclusion. So uh, I went through IBM, and it's via IBM that I created the first LGBT group in uh, St. John, New Brunswick in 2000, came back to Montreal in 2005. I created in 2008 with seven other persons, Pride at Work Canada. Uh, and for me, Pride at Work Canada was my revenge, was my way of, uh, okay, I'm going to get the workplace. I'm going to change every workplace possible. All right. And I think it did work to a certain point. So I was there for 10 years. And through that, I became the president of Fondation Emergence that has the International Day Against Homophobia. And I'm the one that had transphobia to it. 
by consultation as a president. And then in 2014, there's someone that calls me. And, and you have to understand, 1984, I got fired. Mm-hmm. The only person I knew that was uh, fired was Michelle Douglas in 1992. And when that happened, I was sure they were going to ring my doorbell and come and see me and apologize and get my job back. But they never did. They never even talked. There was a purge. They never. Mm. So everybody was so ashamed. Nobody was talking about it. So I didn't meet anybody else until 2014. That's where I met the first time someone else that was affected and so affected mm-hmm. that I felt privileged. And they say, we want to ask for an apology. So I decided to try to help. And it was two women from Maritime again, two professors from St. John University, I have to say it, Carmen Poulain and Lynn Gutelier, that were doing a research in 2000 and asked me questions. They're the one that pushed in 2014 that a group get together with Gary Kingsman, Patricia Gentile, all academicians together, and we asked for apology. Mm-hmm. And we did. We went in 2015 at Parliament in front of Harper, and I don't think anybody heard about it because it didn't work, right? It didn't get anywhere. So it took the EGAL organization that created the Just Society Committee where it was all people from all around Canada, mostly from legal activists and all that, that put together 84 recommendations for the new Liberal Party that just got in with. uh, And in it, they asked to put with them an apology. So they asked us, can we put it in a recommendation and can someone from with them an apology comes to, to Ottawa? So I ran there and I met for the first time Douglas Elliott, and Michelle Douglas, live. It was the first oh, wow. time in my life. It was really like, and then again, the story, more and more people going through it. And it was like coming from everywhere. And that's where I joined the Just Society Committee to represent Quebec. And we really, really thought when we give the recommendation to G- Judy Rebel that she would put them in place, mm-hmm. but she didn't, <laughs> not right away. It was taking forever. So in December 2016, I brought my file to Douglas Elliott and I asked him, can we do something about this? And he said, let's do a class action. So that's how we launched a class action in December 2016 in Quebec, Ontario. And we found out there was someone in Nova Scotia, Alida Satilic, that wanted to do it. So we got her on board. And we had 11 lawyers uh, to go fight for it. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is quite a story. I know. And one that takes place over so many decades. Thanks so much for, uh, for sharing that journey from back when you were 19 years old uh, up until 
you know, 2017 when the apology was made. And then after that, uh, the formulation of, of this documentary, The Fruit Machine. I, I just want to go back for those who maybe haven't seen The Fruit Machine or um, don't know the significance of the name of that title. My understanding is that the fruit machine as a name was like um, the formula they used, uh, like a queer detector as they were spying and hunting and, and looking for queer people within the military and a series of questions and traits that they aligned to those who they suspected of being homosexual. Um, do you want to talk a, just a little bit about the significance of that, of the name? Yeah, exactly. It, it was created uh, by the RCMP. Uh, what happened, it was a machine that uh, a, a Dr. Wake of Carleton University uh, that was sent in the United States to study um, kind of a machine that was looking at so showing picture and image and depending of the eye's pupil uh, shape and all that, they would say, oh, that person is gay or not gay. It seems they tried it for a couple of years and that was mostly uh, like in the 50s when they started. Because when you're from the community, it's not necessarily written on your forehead. So they were, how can we find the gays? They did all kind of thing. And Ottawa, they even tried to do a map with trying to find everybody where they, they, they meet out. And then some trade, the way that people were walking, holding their book, uh, which car they were driving, which way they were sitting in the bar. Uh, and it, all that because of the fear that if the KGB, with Russia, would get us and would get us to talk because we're gays. So that started with the Russian and the communists and everything. And that was the rational behind why they were arresting us. So they created that machine called the fruit machine. Fruit machine is really like a satire. It's, it's we're making a, we're laughing about the community. And it was such a bad one that it's still in the book. And this machine is at the War Museum in Ottawa. Never really worked. Uh, it was because they could not really detect. It was not a, a, a for sure thing. So then they went to the other way, which was witch hunt. They were following us, they were taking pictures. Uh, when they were arresting someone, the real, the, the goal was to break that person and get that person to give names. And what we found out too, uh, with a researcher, um, a reporter from the Global Mail, is there was a, a, a John Watkins um, that was a diplomat in the 50s. He was a friend of Leslie Pearson. And it seems, um, while he was in Paris, he had, he, he had an affair with a Russian guy. The RCMP was so scared that the KGB arrested him that they arrested him. They interrogated him in Paris for many hours, then brought him to Dorval in Quebec and interrogated him for over 60 hours and he died of a heart attack. For us, it's the beginning of it, that, that crazy interrogation that doesn't finish and goes in circle and try to break you. Um, so this, this story about a thousand page just came out uh, to talk about it. And we have to understand this started like at the, as after the second war until 1992. This is a long time.
it's almost unbelievable, you know, when I was listening to, you know, how some people had had bags put over their head and put into a car and driven somewhere and then interrogated for hours. And, you know, the psychological torture that, you know, you all, all went through during that period of the apology. Did anyone that had, you know, participated in the purge, you know, within the RCMP, did any of them come forward and apologize? Or do you ever wonder what had happened to those people? For sure. We always wonder. Um, the closest I got was the, someone that was in the legal team um, that dealt with it and that today is, is, is feeling really bad, but she didn't really have any control. People didn't really have a control on it. You have to understand this was a black and white policy. And when you were in the army, and I'm sure RCMP, you were never questioning decision from, from hierarchy. You were listening. And that's what I'm trying to find out. Because for me too, it doesn't make sense. I'm sure people raise their hand. I'm sure people say things. It's impossible nobody didn't say anything and accept that all along. Um, and that's why we work really, really hard with the Perch Fund to go and get, we got about 30,000 archive now on the website. Uh, from that period, but it doesn't tell us everything. So um, there's the national defense too that are doing some research to find out, to find out what happened. I am curious on the topic of documentation. Now, I'm obviously you want the whole story, but I know that uh, the Purge Fund is still fighting to get more documents declassified and released. And it sounds like that is a, sort of continually a fight what are you hoping to achieve by getting the full documentation? You know, when I was working at IBM, there's one thing that I learned is if I don't have the problem, I cannot find a solution. Hmm. I remember people freaking out when I used to tell them, can you reproduce the issue for me to find a solution? For me, that's it. We, we need to talk about what happened to get somewhere else. And when we're in denial, then we make it like it didn't happen. Well, it's dormant. And this is what's happening today. It's mm -hmm. coming out left, right, and center. Because people are not well-informed. People are misinformed. And that's why I find that that documentation needs to tell us the story. I'm going to tell you, we succeed. We went to court and we got our documentation we were looking for. So now we have 30,000. We have almost everything we okay. were looking for. And we have Sven Robinson and uh, Sauer Wortman as well, uh, working on those documents. We want to know what happened. We want to know where are our allies, because mm -hmm. I'm sure we had some. I want to know who are the people, because one question I have, and maybe somebody's going to tell me one day, is I come in 69, we decriminalize homosexuality, but in his own company, in his own house, it was criminal for 23 more years. That I don't understand. Time to take a break from this Trans Canada Stories for a TD Connected Communities moment. In Trans Canada Stories, we're all about connecting communities. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's shows. Were you aware of The Purge or is it new information for you? Leave us a message on our SpeakPipe phone line and be a part of the conversation. We'll share highlights from your responses in the next episode. That was a TD Connected Community Moment because community matters. I still remember listening to the apology. I think my son had transitioned two years prior and I still remember Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, words, you know, 
I am sorry. We are sorry. And, you know, I, I couldn't fathom what it was for. I really like there was no connection. There was no context. And then I thought, who is he apologizing on behalf? Where, where is the we? You know, where are their apologies? Um, just watching the fruit machine was just, uh, oh, it's just such an eye opener. And I really hope that it's um, a film that perhaps educators uh, pull into schools, you know, and, and make it part of the high school curriculum um, for people to, to learn more about what, you know, our history. So uh, if I can jump in here, speaking of our history, particularly as Canadians, I've been really excited about this interview. <laughs> and so I've been telling all my friends and uh, I have an older acquaintance. And when I described The Fruit Machine, because I was trying to get him to, to watch the documentary, um, the sort of immediate reaction was, I said, this thing happened in Canada. And he said, yeah, but also in the States, right? <laughs> and that line <laughs> just drives me a little bit nuts. There is this built-in Canadian bread defense system of blaming everything on America and assuming that all of our sins come from there. And uh, I teach workshops and it comes up again and again, this Canadian smugness um, of that doesn't happen here. And if it did, it was because of someone, some other country, some other culture. Um, and maybe this is just my bias being Canadian that I feel like it's more of a problem here. But do you think that uh, this film and your story will have a concrete effect on this idea that racism and, and discrimination of all kinds happens somewhere else and that Canada isn't like that? I like your question very much and your point there. And I totally agree. Uh, I hear it a lot too. For me... I find that we've been in denial a lot and, and we sit on that and, and we we act as if, and yes, we like to blame others, but no, uh, this happened here. It was really a Canadian product. It was in our military book, uh, CP 19, uh, OCF 1920. Uh, it was enforced everywhere. A lot of people knew about it. I still I meet a lot of military people that tell me, oh, that's what happened to my friend that disappeared. People didn't know because they were really like even me. Uh, m my best friend didn't know where I went. And and that time we didn't have a cell phone. We didn't have email. We had no way of connecting together. And we were so ashamed that we were not talking about it. Me, I went back to Montreal and people were asking me, what happened to you? Oh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I was not telling them I got fired for being gay. I think the first time I really came out with that was at IBM because I was so ashamed. And and I think it's it's very sad that we always hide behind that. Like, um, it's like the 60 scoop for me, okay? Uh, I met someone that was sold in a magazine. And when I tell people that, they're like, no, no, it didn't happen here. And I'm like, yes, it did. It did. We used to sell kids in magazine that we used to take away from their family because they had no water or electricity. And for us, they cannot be taken care of. So we have all those preconditioned vision of, of the way it's supposed to be. And I'm... Um, um, even when I came to New Brunswick the first time in the 90s uh, and discovering Acadian, 
and wanted to put the Acadian flag in Norton and being told, no, don't do that. They're going to burn you down. And I was like, we're in Canada. And, and so mm-hmm. I think it is so important that we talk about the real thing. And like I said prior, I think it's the only way we're going to find solution. And me, I'm still think, you know, I, when I was 18, I didn't want to talk, go from being heterosexual to homosexual. I didn't want to go from one to the other. I just wanted to be myself. And I'm going to tell you a little story. My mother was really, really hard for me on being gay. She was like thinking it's a face. She was even thinking I was doing it just to provoke her. And she was missing out. And I left for a while. And when I came back to Montreal in 2005, she was so happy that it's like she forgot about that hatred she had. And and I was at IBM and the group at IBM was called Blue Queer. Since 1995, it was created. And queer is not a sexual orientation. It's not a gender identity. It's out of the norm. It's it's a great great name in a way when you think about it. But when I tried to translate it, it was impossible because it was like cubleu, like cubleu, ça marche pas. It doesn't work. So she was seeing me struggle trying to find a French name because I'm in Quebec and Montreal. She calls me two days later and she said, "I found it." And I said, what did you find? The name you're looking for your group. And I'm like, you and all people were looking for that name. I have to listen to this. And she said, nuance. And I was stunned. Because for me, nuance is exactly who I am. I'm not just a lesbian. I'm not just a white woman. I'm not just, I'm all kind of different Mm -hmm. little things mixed together. And there's not one like me. And I have all my nuance. So, and it's French and it's English. So at IBM, the employee resource group, the business resource group that we call today is Blue Q Nuance. And for me, that's my philosophy. That's the way mm. I see life. And I really see life as an electricity, you know, as it's electrifying. You meet people, you, you share energy. And I, and I really, really thought that because of COVID, we were scared of dying, that we would not get where we are today mm-hmm. and all day today. So I really hope the documentary helps for that. I'm sorry the documentary was not prior to the apology. That would make more sense. People would understand the apology and understand why he was in touch because it was he read the story of Diane Pitre and Diane Pitre was rape. So that's why he was so in touch when he delivered the apology. She was right in front of him, standing up. So it's, it's important, all the step, and I'm sorry that you know, when you fight a case like this, you cannot put all the play, mm-hmm. the pieces. So it comes after. Hopefully now people will understand. And to finish, uh, Cynthia, you're going to be happy to know that Canadian Army Forces bought the right of the movie for three years. And Veteran Affair did as well. And they're using it. And I've been going around to headquarters of the Army. I did a lot of public function. Um, with the Purge Fund as well, we got subtitle and we even have dub, we even dubbed it um, in French. So we're really trying to use it as a tool, like you say, because I think it is a great tool. That is phenomenal. And and out of this as well, through the, the fund that you received, um, 
to to bring this story out into the open, um, the Rainbow Veterans of Canada was also formed. Is that correct? Yes, it was a it was a funny story too because it was an accident. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But Diane Pitt aunt created a nice crest for us because we were called serving with pride. And uh, when I was creating the citation, which is the medal that was given to everyone, I was working with the Herald Office. And when I showed them the badge, the crest, they said it was illegal because it has to be ordered by the army to have a crest. So I said, okay, so let's order one. And they say, well, you have to create a legion. <laughs> and I say, wow, yes, <laughs> let's create a legion. And that's how the Rainbow Veteran of Canada were created. Uh, the Perch Fund funded the whole creation. And now Diane Pitre and Todd Ross are the two co-chair. And a lot of people are on board and they work with Veteran Affairs. And it became the best thing ever because now they can help even people that are in the military today, are coming out as a veteran, or people that are older never really get any support about their sexual orientation. So with the creation of something um, like the Rainbow Veterans of Canada, um, when I'm having these conversations with people who maybe don't know the ins and outs of what's going on all the time, a question that I get a lot is like, haven't we kind of solved this? <laughs> and and it's true. Things have gotten a lot better. The conditions have changed and, and largely they've changed uh, for the better. So from someone who's been doing this work for many decades, how has the work of inclusion changed from witch hunts in the 70s and 80s to today? It changed a lot, for sure, uh, because we're allowed to get married. Um, we can have children. But <laughs> it's never acquired. That's the problem. And and that's what's happening now. And and I'm, I'm, I was very proud of what, where we got. I was proud of the apology. I was proud of the class action. Class action is the biggest class action in the world. There's not another country that did that. Uh, the monument, everything. But now... Something is happening and we need to gather and help each other because it's like gender is bothering. And it's not just transgender, it's gender and mostly the woman gender in general. Uh, Anything that is connected to it and then they're going to touch our children too. They're really going in a way... um, that is uh, very concerning, but in the same time, we dealt with all that already too. We have at University of Montreal, it's going to be six years a share for enfants trans. We, 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 it was just renewed to become a um, senior share. Uh, we have clinics, we have people, we have information. And right now, all what's happening, it's disinformation. I have even friends that I'm questioning where, and I'm asking them, where did you see those things? Mm-hmm. Who told you those things? And I think that's the work of all of us to make sure people are well informed. And that's the problem right now. People are being told or being shown things that are not happening. And they're, they're acting and judging on things that are not real. 
So it's really troubling. The whole drag thing too, I find is very troubling too, because for me, I think it's the story that is important, you know? And uh, I don't know, when I was a kid, I had people that were telling me story that were looking as a drag of today. And a drag at the end of the day is a woman. So are we saying that women are disturbing? Are we saying that? So it's all that that I'm questioning. And I'm a mother, so it's it's really hard for me uh, to, to, to understand. So I'm trying to do the best I can to pass the message and use the purge, what happened to us as discrimination and how it destroyed our life as an example of what it can be happening right now with what people are doing. Martine, you're a mother, and you said something last night in the fireside chat that, you know, I don't think people realize how fragile our human rights are and, and you know, everything that is, is going on right here at home but around the world. But you, you mentioned last night how if you were in Italy at the moment, you would no longer be a mother. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just elaborate a little bit on that? And that's so hard for me because um, I live in Italy. I have a lot of friends in Italy. I love Italy. Um, it means that the prime minister decide there the the, the the one that the leader of an Italy and it's a woman mm-hmm. uh, decided that if you are not biologically connected to the child you don't have any more right over the child so the in vitro and everything and us uh, we did the, the we did in vitro with my wife it is her that uh, had the child but it means that if that law was here in Canada, it means that I would not be their mother anymore. All the paper and everything I did would be invaluable. So that's what I mean, like abortion and the States, look what just happened. So it's very important to grasp that it's not because we acquire some right that we always gonna have them. We have to preserve them. We have to care for them. And this is why it was so important in the 84 recommendation. I invite you to go on the EGAL website and look at the Just Society Committee recommendation. You're gonna see we even help to uh, put C60 to expunge uh, a file from people that had growth in the sense. We even remove a law that was here since we put our feet here that was saying that two men, they can they have to be both 18. One cannot be 16 like a woman. It could be arrested. So we remove that law. A lot of things change, but people have to be aware and they have to be aware to make sure we save those and that we don't go backwards. This may be a difficult question to answer, but if you had the opportunity to sit down with um, some, you know, a Department of Education leader, a Minister of Education in one of the provinces right now that, you know, is not New Brunswick, is not Saskatchewan, and they might be in a position where they're determining where they're going to go with allowing, you know, gender affirming education in school. Um, what what would you say to them if you had that opportunity? Mm. I would bring them with me to a meeting at the Meraki Clinic to meet with Chevaux Gosh and Andrea Gorsgov, two doctors that was with Children Montreal, and sit down and let's talk. Because people, like I say, are misinformed. One of the things I can tell you, there's not one child that will go in a clinic 
that will get an operation from it. And a lot of time, they're going to give beta blocker. And a beta blocker is not a new medication. It exists since the 70s. We used it for puberty that was too fast or not fast enough. And this permits to the child to decide or to feel himself, to give him the time, to give him the buffer, and to give as well the doctor and everybody working with that child to make sure that they're doing the right thing because you know the decision, it belongs to the child. At the end of the day, nobody else should be deciding for them. It should be the child. And we did all that. We even put in place a law in Quebec that at 14, you can change your name if you need. Because it is traumatizing to go in a school and see yourself as one gender and being called another gender. And the thing at, at the end, I would say to that person, what does it matter what does it matter? You know, the child, what you want, you want a child that is healthy, thriving, you know, authentic. What does it matter? That's why I always come back to it's the electricity and not the plumbing that is important in someone. And I, and I find that people really put a lot of time on gender like that. And I'm going to be honest, and I talk a lot with my wife about it, and I was talking to, to a woman this morning too, I don't feel like a woman all the time. I don't. And there's day I feel way more masculine than feminine. And I just want to be. So that's what people are saying. And we want to get out of the norm. We've been in the norm forever. You know, the pink and the blue and it's a, it's a boy, it's going to go this way. It's a girl, it's going to... Can we just be? You know, and I think that would be helpful if we go by the study of, of Aboriginal and even my, my wife is a First Nation. Kids, when they they were born, they were not said, okay, you're going to be a woman and you're going to be, they were just be. And they would let them grow and they would let them like if that child wants to go hunting, if that, they would let them be and discover themselves. And I think that's what we need to do. And I think we should concentrate more on the curriculum than on that, because right now we're losing a lot of time. And I find that the curriculum are, in school needs to be changed to me, be more 2023 for the skills and what people need. Children are somewhere else with all the data, with all the accessibility. We don't need to show them how to access a computer, I think. So we need to talk about something else. We need to be somewhere else. And I don't know why this is coming out so strong right now. I don't know why people are so scared of, I would like them to tell me, what are people scared of about this topic? I think that's such a good point. And I think you're exactly right. I don't think people would be scared of this topic if it wasn't for sort of that false narrative of, of fear mongering that is just happening, unfortunately. But that is such great advice. Thank you, Martine. You're welcome. All right. I think we're almost out of time. I'm going to leave you with one last question. Your LinkedIn profile says that one of your important skills is being authentic. What does that mean for you and what can we achieve by simply going out and being ourselves? I think we can achieve that people's going to love us for who we are and not for what we try to look for, like, like, right? I find that a lot of time we try to fit and look 
uh, for others. And and what's important is us. Uh, one thing is I'm a very spontaneous person. So when I'm not authentic, it's like I lose my voice. It's like things are not coming out like I want them to come out. Um, I know it's I can be vulnerable like that too. And I know being vulnerable is not easy. But I'd rather be vulnerable than non-accessible, you know. And and for me, it's important. Um, like I said, I have two kids, you know, and I really want to show a good example. I don't want to show them somebody like, that is not happy or, you know, I, I want to show like, and to take risk too. And it is a risk to be authentic, but I find it, I always say it's like an investment. You know, like the documentary for me was an investment, you know. I have a big mortgage to pay because I'm doing it, but it's a great investment because it's giving back, it's being back. And I don't know for you guys, but me, when I'm not authentic, I cannot be focused and I cannot be productive. So it slows me down. It, it makes my work harder. And I find I cannot answer people the way I would mm -hmm. like to. I always make the, the comment, like my wife had breast cancer. And if I could not be authentic, I would say what well, my husband has a cancer. Mm -hmm. And you start lying about it and all that. And at KPMG, they did a study, 500 employees and, and more that are not authentic, lose about 15 minutes a day in lying. At the end of the year, it's over a million point five in lost time. So when people like to talk about money, that talks about money. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wish I could keep you here all day, but I can't. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for coming into the show. And uh, I, I hope everybody listening uh, runs out and watches The Fruit Machine. It is a fantastic documentary. And hopefully we'll be able to have you on the show again. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I wish you an amazing day. Thank you all. It's the end of the road for this episode of Trans Canada Stories. If you'd like more information on our other programming, check out simplygoodform.com. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast and that we'll see you again next time.